in everybody to the land of self-doubt that is my brain. No, I'm sorry, wrong page. Turning the page. Ah, welcome into Sad Times. My name is Kevin. I am your host. Thank you so much for joining us. Please, please tell a friend, tell a cousin, tell a second cousin. Leave the third cousins out of this, though. For those of you who have never listened to Sad Times before, here's a quick little primer. Each week, we have a very kind and generous guest who comes on and talks about times in their life when they faced challenges, when they were upset, sad, angry, uh, felt like everything was insurmountable, uh, because we all go through these very difficult times. They are, in fact, universal, yet we don't often talk about them. And we believe at Sad Times that if we all talked a little bit more about the challenges in our lives, we would all feel a little less alone. So that's Sad Times. We do have a website. Uh, It's www. or as I like to call it, a period, sadtimespodcast.com. Go there. There's lots of fun stuff, and you can listen to all the episodes. We are also on Amazon Music now, so if you're just sitting around the house and you want to listen to some sad times and you got one of those Alexa gadgets, you can say, hey, Alexa, play sad times, and then they will play the podcast. How about that? All right, let's get to our sponsor. Our sponsor today is Product Placement. Ever wonder why you were suddenly craving 18 Pepsis after watching The Goonies? On top of that, wonder why every one of the 37 Pepsis are facing directly at the camera. No wonder Fuller can't go easy on the Pepsi in Home Alone. And while we're at it, why are you drinking Pepsi? Probably because of the Goonies and Home Alone, Coca-Cola is a far superior product and likely used in way more product placements. Coca-Cola for life. All right, great. Uh, As always, remember to support our sponsors. That's how the show gets made using the code F-A-K-E at checkout. That's F-A-K-E at checkout. And now, without further ado, the man who saved my soul... Adam. Adam, how are you doing, sir? I'm doing very well, Kevin. Thanks. How are you? Oh, gosh. I'm hanging in there, man. It's good to see your face and that ukulele behind you. Yeah, the ukulele that's never played. Never? For more of a fashion statement. Not an instrument I can play. Fair. Uh, Really? Well, you got a guitar. You play guitar, don't you? Guitar I can play. that was more of a lockdown purchase that never really happened. Uh, so it's there as a reminder to learn it one day. Those are the things that kept the economy going. People are like, I have yep. all this time. I'm going to learn to cross stitch or whatever it may be. And then we didn't. Exactly. Yeah. yeah the piano in the other rooms, another example of that. No, you've played some piano. I know you played some piano. Many, many years ago. Yeah. So I'll get back into it, you know, yeah. learn properly. That didn't happen either, but. Right. Um, so, as we can tell by your melodious accent, you're not from Georgia. Uh, where are you from, sir? So I'm from the north of England. Um, my original hometown is a little town called Accrington. Um, so when most people think of England, they think of London. That's several hundred miles away and may as well be another country. So, yeah. Uh, that's where I'm from. And I'm currently living in a little village called Edgeworth, which is uh, not far away from my hometown. Okay. And is that near like Manchester? Yeah, it's about 40 minutes away. If you walk, to the, I live on a hill. And if you walk to the top of the hill, you can see Manchester. So I'm within like line of sight of the city. Mm. Uh, are you trying to say that the earth is flat? <laughs> No, I'm just no. kidding. Uh, good. Um, and I know because I have not been to the house where you are, but I have been, I was at your previous home uh, when you and your lovely yeah. bride got married. You invited me to your wedding, which was very nice of you. Uh, that was, uh, what was that, June 1st, 2019? That was a long time ago. Yeah. Yeah, it was. It was God damn. Over, yeah, it was. Four year, over four years now. Yeah, that That's was a that was a great trip because we made our second pilgrimage to Liverpool. We did. I oh. returned to the Cavern Club. Yes. There were less tears the second time. That's true. So uh for those of you listening and Brent, uh uh Adam and I in January of two thousand fourteen, I flew over to London, where you were living at the time, 
and yep. we took a train up to Liverpool. And we went to the Cavern Club, which is not the original Cavern Club, but it's basically on the same site. They've basically redone it. This is the club that the Beatles really came up in, et cetera, et cetera. And Adam and I saw a Beatles cover band at the Cavern Club. And um, during In My Life, there was just lots of crying. It was very dusty. What can I say? Yeah, I know. You got to wipe that shit away, man. (laughs) And then we went, then we got on a plane for a very brief flight to Dublin. And then in the Dublin airport, I had, I stopped in the restroom for about seven to nine hours and you got accosted. (laughs) What were they? It was some sort of a survey or something. I was filling out surveys about Irish shopping centers um, (laughs) (laughs) for about two hours. Yeah. Um, And you're like, don't ever do that to me again, which, no, Fair. I almost left you. I almost left you. It was too long. It was too long. Yeah, I, I'm sorry about that. Just, uh, just in my jeans. So obviously, we've known each other a long time. We worked. Uh, well, you still work for. I worked for uh, a company, and we went. We met not in England, not in America. Where did we meet? In Chennai, in India, our second home. That's right. Uh, we met, this was the summer that I spent three months there. Now I came in May of 2013. How long had you been there at that point? Do you recall? All of 2013. I lived there for a year. So I, I went in 2012 for a week and then I basically lived in India for a year. Yeah. So that was my 2013. So by the time you arrived, I was nearing halfway through that year. Um, I was, Effectively, I felt like a, a citizen. <laughs> yeah, I had adjusted to the Indian way of life um, with ever-changing American faces would come and join in three-month cycles. Yep. You were the second wave, shall we say. Um, and yeah, so that was the most crazy year of my life, I think. Uh, yeah, and, uh, and I think we're going to dive into that a little bit, a little bit later, but uh, I will just say that, you know, some of my fondest memories where we would go across the street to what we called Star Wars Bar, because uh, it was like the cantina in Moss Eisley, and uh, we would go in there, and you and I would just drink pound Kingfishers, uh, which for anybody who's uh, listening and is interested in that, just don't be interested in it. Uh, that's the, the pr- at least in 2013, was the prevalent beer in India. And uh, we would talk about books, you and I. We would sit there and we'd talk about books. And uh, I felt a lot, I was kind of freaking out. And that really helped calm me down. So I know I've thanked you a number of times, but thank you again. No worries. Yes. And uh, everyone should try Kingfisher, uh, <laughs> not for the health benefits, because it has a very high sugar content or for the taste. Um, <laughs> but it does create great memories. It does with the ones you can remember. And it also creates a very singular hangover, uh, going back to the sugar content, uh, that you, that you referenced. Yeah. So Adam being born in the North of England, growing up there, tell us about, uh, you're, you're from a little town called Accrington. Um, tell us about kind of your family. Yeah. So, um, I was born 1987 so i let people calculate my age um and grew up in accrington uh mum and dad brother jonathan or johnny as he's now called uh he's now a tattoo artist so he's way cooler than i am um and very small town i don't know about thirty thousand population um not much there i mean i would say declining northern town Mm-hmm. Pretty much fits that category um, uh, quite well. I mean, lovely place, lovely people, but not much there, not much going on. Um, was it was it, it at lived, one point a manufacturing town? It was a cotton town. So oh. going back to like the Victorian era, it was a much bigger town. So when I was growing up, there were all the derelict mills and abandoned mills and chimneys that would be knocked down every so often. Um, so most of the housing there is still the old, like Victorian terraced housing, um, like the, the mill workers used to work in. So um, that's its kind of background and history. And uh, it's very much the same. I mean, it doesn't really change much now from 30 years ago. I think it's basically everything's still there now that was then. What, and not much has moved on. 
And when you were growing up, because that you, I love the phrase derelict mills. I think that's, um, uh, that's a good phrase. Well, there's, a phrase in, there's a phrase in England where people say it's grim up north. And uh, <laughs> whilst I disagree with that, being very proud from the north, um, I can see why. I can see why that phrase exists. Was there a lot of unemployment then? Um, I mean, I maybe, but I didn't really see it if there was. Like, my dad was a police officer. Uh, my mum did various jobs. At one point, she worked at like a nursery or what would you call it, a kindergarten. Then she worked as a chef at the fire station. Um, oh wow! We lived in like the in, uh, uh, like a, until I was about six. We lived in this you know, like the suburban house, and then when I was six, we moved into my at the time uh, my grandmother and grandfather divorced and had this gigantic Victorian house. And so my mum and dad bought their house and they moved out. And then my granddad had a stroke and he lived with us for a while. So it was an uh, interesting uh, upbringing going into this gigantic Victorian house with a massive garden. It was, it was, it was ridiculous, but very happy memories, good Christmases there and things. Uh, and my granddad Smith lived with us for about a year um, following his stroke. Um, and he could, he had a very interesting and varied life and had done just about every job there ever was and could just, you just, he could talk to anybody about anything. So that was like the first nine years of my life was in this, uh, I don't know, in, in Accrington with my mum and dad and brother. So Johnny's your, two he, years younger than me. Oh, there you go. You answered so, my question. Mm. Yeah. So we had, you know, we were, we always fought. <laughs> you and Jonathan. Constantly. Yeah. I think it's pretty common for brothers who are a similar age to basically just fight. Yeah. I mean, two years time. is pretty close in age. Yeah. But we had, you know, we played together as well. It wasn't all fighting. So you had similar interests and things. I, how do you recall about how old your your grandparents were when they got a divorce? Um, it's just pretty late. I was, I was a, surprised to hear that. Yeah, well, I, I was probably between the ages of uh, before I was six because that was when we moved into that house. By which point they were divorced. So you're talking thirty years ago. Yeah. Um. um but I mean, at the time, I think my grandma was only in a mid forties because. I mean, my mum had me when I was, when she was 23. I think my grandma had kids when she was like 19. So different eras in that respect of having children a lot younger. So to be a grandparent, like you could be a grandfather now. <laughs> whoa, whoa, slow down there, <laughs> buddy. Slow down. Now, uh, no. <laughs> uh, so... I moved in. I love the idea. So, like, did your did your family keep up the garden in that house? Yes. Uh, well, my dad spent a lot of time renovating it because it didn't have central heating. So, uh, if I woke up in winter, I could see my breath, and I would have to get changed under the covers, and there would be ice on the inside of the windows. So that was like my first winter there, and I think by the second winter, we actually had heating installed, which was a lovely luxury. Uh, to not have to get changed under the bed covers before school. Um, Jeez. But yeah, it was a lovely house, um, but very big and very old. And so you moved in there when you were six. So it was you, your mom, your dad, and uh, uh, Jonathan, or as we call him now, Johnny, uh, who's yes. a very nice young man, by the way. Um Tell us what happened there with uh, with it with your family, and then uh, you know what you know, and you have your grandpa there for a year. Then what's going on? Yeah, yeah. So then, about when it was about nine, it was New Year's Eve, nineteen ninety seven, uh, when we were told that my mum and dad were breaking up, and so then that obviously changed our uh, family dynamics quite significantly, going from quite a you know, mum, dad, two kids setup. To a very different setup. So, so that, it, sorry, go ahead. Finish what you're saying. I apologize. And so that 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 did definitely signified a change in lifestyle, uh, very dramatically. And I don't think at the time, I think when you're nine years old, you struggle to process things, you struggle to understand. You you have this very romantic vision of your parents reuniting, and um, I think it, it's it's an unusual age because you're still a child, but you're also starting to become 
not quite a teenager, but at least more aware of uh, dynamics within families and your own place within the family. So, yeah, that was when I was about nine, um, and Johnny would have been seven. Yeah. Uh, New Year's Eve. So I remember it exactly, yeah. Yeah, tell like, us, tell us, set the scene. So we went to my grandma's in her new house for New Year's Eve, and then as we were leaving, we were told, oh, uh, your dad's staying to fit some cupboards for grandma. <laughs> I said, oh, and so he'll be, he'll be staying at grandma's for tonight. So we thought, oh, well, that stranger's going to stay stay there um, on New Year's Eve. Um, and then my mum took Johnny and I back home and told us that they were breaking up. And we literally didn't believe her. We just laughed. We were in hysterics at the time. And then I remember going upstairs and then crying all night because I, oh. I, I don't know. I, I hadn't, I couldn't understand it. And then that, that signified quite a dramatic life change which it does as a child if your parents break up it changes everything it changes your living arrangements it changes who you see when you see you i mean going through that process of a divorce it's not just the parents who divorce is it you you, you experience it as a as a child as yeah. well from a very different perspective did um, you so that I, happened did you ever feel it was your fault i didn't understand i think the big problem at the time was um you don't understand anything. I mean, I think you, it's, I don't know if I blame myself, but it was a complete lack of comprehension and understanding. Like, I couldn't understand why. Like, why would they break up? Like, do they not love me and my brother? Do they? It, it was very difficult to understand. Um, and this is a different era. I think this is way before people talked about things. I don't think we'd ever, we ever spoke about things. Uh, in in that in that respect of how are you feeling about this right was there a uh, reason given or just that your dad and i are going to split up and live yeah, in different homes yeah we we yeah we've uh, we've we're, we've fallen out of love we've uh, oh we're fed up of arguing in front of you blah 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 um and then that uh that resulted in uh, the next few years of life being very different tell me about that please um so after that, my dad stayed in the house and my mum moved to a place called Pickup Street in Clayton into one of the very small uh, terrace houses I've mentioned earlier that the Victoria Mill workers used to live in. So we went from this very big house, a big garden, to a very small house. I remember my bedroom, it fit my single bed in and then I could put my arms in, on each side of the wall and oh, wow. touch both both walls. Um but did you have heating? We had heating, yes. We yeah. did have central heating. So it wasn't, it, you know, we had that luxury. Um, but at the time, my mum didn't have any money. You know, it was a time of real uh, struggle, shall we say, because going from having, a, I suppose, a two-income family with a big home to a very small house, and my mum at the time was working as a... Uh, chef for the fire station so money was tight and i mm. was aware it was tight at the time um because you just notice things are different you notice how money becomes a much more of a conscious thing that you're aware of versus something you just are unaware of <laughs> like before this happened it wasn't something i ever thought of um and it it definitely changed me at the time and it was only years later looking back that i realized how big an impact it did have at the time um because when you're when you're 9 10 11 i mean um you're, you're not very conscious of your own uh well-being and mental state but then looking back many years later became very aware of the impact it had um okay and what impact do you think that was I, obviously you're struggling um you're probably feeling a lot of what we would call it was a, it, i became very i think i became very lonely I became very withdrawn, lost a lot of confidence, and became very shy and uh, kind of insular, very introspective, which I think I am a natural introvert, but I, looking back, it kind of went beyond what was more natural for me and, and definitely became more of a, I don't know, feeling sad, you know, definitely yeah. feeling sad generally. Um, 
feeling like what could have been if if and uh, uh, if things had been different. Um, and my mum and dad did the best to you know shield us from whatever they could. I mean, it wasn't that. I mean, they they're still they're very good friends now. You know, it's not that they hate each other or that was never uh, an issue, shall we say? Um, yeah. But it did have an impact, and I know it was many years later, um, in, in therapy of all places, that it, it helped me to start processing some of those feelings that hadn't been processed for so long. And it was, it was you know, we're talking many years later, which we may move on to later. Um, but it, I think it just it, it just highlighted to me how, I don't know, not talking about things, not processing things, you hold on to them until you have done. <laughs> that's <laughs> that's what it taught me anyway. Yeah, and uh, you know, at nine, ten, eleven, as you're saying, you you can't even really often put a name to what you're feeling, but it is a very desolate feeling. It's very lo- lonely. Uh, I think is word yeah. you used a few times. Did you did you feel um, did you did it bring you and your brother closer in any way? Like we're going to bond together, even if it's not even spoken, because of of this rift in the family. I think yeah, I think so. I mean, at the time, I think we were very close because it was just kind of me and him right whether, whether we're at my mum's dad's, it's me and him and uh, when i was 11 i moved i went to a secondary school and i was the only person that went from my primary school so i didn't know anybody when i got there Ooh. Uh, and i hated every day of my high school or secondary school as we call it like i really did not enjoy it, it was a catholic school i'm not catholic no you're um, not i turned atheist on my first day of secondary school <laughs> when um i just <laughs> it went from i went from sorry i went from a very um church of england school which is kind of like you sing a few hymns you might do a prayer once or twice a week to catholic school where you have prayers and three-hour masses and grace before you eat food and so it was it was going from one extreme to another in terms of like religious severity and intensity so that's that 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 helped me turn atheist from a very young age. So did, um, you're saying so, that uh, the Catholicism didn't take, and apparently it didn't take within hours. No, no, literally the first day. Um, I, I went probably quite agnostic, not having really thought much about Christianity or God. Mm-hmm. But then after one, I remember it that it was in like I think it's like my first or second day in a physics class, and we had to do some weird prayer. And I remember there was this light bulb went off in my head, and I just thought, okay, this doesn't make sense to me. <laughs> you say in physics class? In physics, yeah. We had to do just random prayers all Do you the think time. anybody was like, why are we saying a prayer? I mean, I think the physics over here is explaining it. Yeah, no, I don't know. There were prayers all the time. Like it, it, <laughs> it, 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 was, it just baffled me. I never understood it. I suppose if you're in that world from a young age, it might make more sense to you, but... Uh, like going into that world at 11 again it's quite an odd age to be introduced to catholicism are you still an atheist today yes yes yeah i have been ever since well you know uh it sounds like it worked out for you there at the catholic school uh so you're in the small house you're very conscious of money in a way that obviously even at 9 10 or 11 that you didn't even think about it before you're still no. seeing your dad right you guys are doing the yeah 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 still saw my dad i think it was like every other weekend and maybe a midweek night every so often so we still saw him because he was a shit he worked shift with police so it was kind of i suppose figuring that in and then he he um eventually remarried and he had my sister and oh wow uh, now, so both my mum and dad both remarried, both had a daughter each. Um, so, you know, my family network expanded quite significantly. In how a, in how old were you when your first of your two sisters was born? I was 10 and then I was 11 for the next. So it was it was in quite quick succession. Wow. Um, okay. Not long afterwards. And so um, you, you said your mom remarried now. So did you have a stepfather living with you? Yes, yeah. So my, uh, I was, I met my stepfather, but now ex stepfather, thankfully, when I was about, I don't know, I suppose it must have been about nine or ten, um, and we moved in with him, and he had a 
dog who I loved. It's dog Cassie. It had three legs. It was an English sheepdog. Oh. Um, best dog ever. Um, and so initially it was all very positive, but then um, not the nicest of, of, of human beings was this man, uh, to say the least. Um, he, he created a very uh, negative atmosphere, very controlling, very um, very angry, very short-tempered. Um, uh, and then combining that with, uh, it wasn't like I had a happy school life. So I would have a pretty miserable day at school and go back to a pretty miserable time at home. Um, and that went on for a, a number of years and uh, uh, put me in a dark place to say I was so young. You know, to say I was a, a young teenager, I didn't, I, looking back at the time, it was, it was, there wasn't much happiness or joy in life. So, um, uh, right. And, and I mean, I think it, it cannot be overstated what you said about, forget the religion and stuff. You, you go to the school the first day and it's a brand new school. And I believe you said you didn't know anybody. No, I had one friend for my first two or three years. Of um of secondary school, so we got on. Uh, he was somebody I met on the again in like the first week, and it was just kind of me and him, yeah, palling around. But you know, it it wasn't the it, again, it wasn't a happy school. It didn't have very happy people in it. Um, and was so it the it just, threat of hell? Was it just the constant threat of hell that made it unhappy? It was. It was. So it was. It was like a nineteen seventies horrible ugly concrete building on mm. top of the hill it was always raining and cold i've just got memories of being forced <laughs> to play like football or soccer as you call it what with the rain pelting down and it was cold and horrible like every memory i have i just remember being cold <laughs> and actually i just thought of something it was around this time so you started going there when you were 11 it's right around this time that the harry potter books started coming out Oh, massive fan! Yeah, I used to get the books on the day of release. I would, I would put. I used to put a pound deposit at the bookshop, and you could get the book on the day of release. I wasn't the person who stayed up till midnight, but I would be there like first thing the next day, right? And then read the book cover to cover in about a day, and then we'd all share the books amongst friends because not everybody could get a copy. Oh, so, yeah, that's I was sweet. A big Harry Potter fan. Still and did you am, find a like, lot I of escape were. from that too? Because well, I. Obviously read, not the same as what you were going through, but he was in that house on, what is it, Four yeah, Pivot Drive or whatever? Reading generally. So I started reading uh, like by myself when I was six years old, and the first proper book I read was an Enid Blyton book about the Famous Five. I don't know if you have that in the States. It's like a very twee, uh, oldie-worldie type book about five kids who go on adventures. And that was the first book I read, and I've probably read about a book a week ever since then. So I read a lot. I read every night. I always have done. Yeah. It's kind of like my go-to place even now uh, for, I don't know, escape. And it helps reset my mind. So, yeah, I've always been a reader. We, always, always. You have always, you have, since I've known you, you've been what I call one of my reading heroes. Uh, because, let's see, when we were in India, you read The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich. Um, yeah, light reading. Yeah, just some light reading there. And then you had either just read or were about to read. Then you read War and Peace. You read Les Mis. And I'm talking unabridged here. Oh, yeah. The full. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, right now you're reading uh, the great Stephen King, I believe, right? I am. Yeah. The Dark Half, which is uh, I've not heard. It was given to me by my uh, my stepdad. And uh, it's a very, very good book. I recommend it. I've read a lot of Stephen King, but this is one of the best ones. All right. Well, I have not read it, and I've also read. I'm reading his uh, his newest book. Where are we going here? That's how it works. There it is. Um, okay, so reading became a big escape for you. You're at school. It's fucking raining. You're playing fucking soccer, and you're like, I don't even want to. Uh, yep. I've always known you as somebody who didn't really care about sports. Is that Was that the case I as still a kid? Don't. Yeah. I still don't. I have never cared about any sport ever, whether it's watching or playing. I cannot stand the concept of sport. I don't understand it. I've no interest in it. So but, being forced to play the games. I remember when I used to get my school report card and it would be like A-A-A-A-A-F for PE. Which is <laughs> and the, the PE teacher would write things like uh, 
uh, Adam would uh, do better if he participated and didn't run away from the ball in football. <laughs> like I would literally <laughs> actively run away. I don't want anything to do with that. No, and if they would put me like because nobody wanted to be the goalkeeper, so they would put me in the goal. No way on earth was I going to stop that ball going in the net. So again, <laughs> go in the goals, and then I would run away from the ball. I hated it. I hated it. Um, in my in year nine, which I think my third year, I started going to the library, and I would lie and say that a random teacher had sent me there to do some homework, and I did that for about three years, and the P teacher didn't bother doing anything about it because I think they saw that I'd I'd I'd, I'd hit my limit with sports in general. So you just so stopped this, going I, to PE? I just stopped going. I would just go to the library. Yeah. <laughs> and just lie and say, um, you know, I'm doing coursework and I yeah, yeah, that was miserable. But I enjoyed the library. You know, that was a nice place. Oh, libraries are the best places on earth, really. Yeah. So yeah. then you get done with shitty school where you have one friend um, and then you get home and you said that your stepdad was um, very controlling. I mean, I, yes. I obviously know what controlling means, but can you let me know exactly what do you mean by that? Can you give us some examples? Small things, small things like uh, make me a cup of tea, which you would think is a pretty simple request. But then if it didn't have enough milk or too much milk, you then have to make another cup of tea or make me some toast. And if the toast is too well done or not well done enough or do the dishwasher, you've not done the little things. But it was constant. You're in this constant kind of pressure of having to do things. Um, and they had to be done to the right level of quality or you would have to do things again. But that was continuous all the time, were month you, after month and year after year. Did that cause, like, were you afraid of him? Yeah, yeah, massively. I, I used to, When I was at school and the school bell would go off, I would physically jump. Like the loud sounds cause a physical reaction to me for years. Um, and it was this constant fear of something being done wrong or being shouted at. He was a very loud man. Um, did you have anybody you could, t I, I know you said, you know, you, you did come to therapy a little bit later, but did you have anybody later you could on, talk to? Many years later. No, not at the time. I found solace in Marilyn Manson uh, from the oh. age of about 14. So that he became my like uh, second refuge, which is a very a, a real shame with all the recent controversies coming out about him. Um, but it was it was when I was about fourteen, and I I became like a bit more alternative into my more metal music and grew my hair long and kind of that found a lot of solace in that world. And that again was a new form of escape and a new definitely massively expanded my social network when you start having more of an interest in music at that age yeah so um would you have called your what how would you refer to yourself a metalhead a goth none of the above at the time at the time you were a mosher a mosher so you were a mosher or a metalhead uh -huh. um, and then eventually a few years later i did become a full-blown goth with the whole black hair <laughs> nail varnish <laughs> the works would you wear um, makeup no, at the time? Uh, I, I did it briefly, yeah. When I went, when I was like a full-on goth, and I used to go to goth clubs and think I was really cool and edgy and alternative with my big. The, I don't know if you know familiar with New Rocks, like these massive boots with huge platforms. Oh, we might and, call those moon boots. Over yeah, here? probably something similar. Yeah. Like the type of shoes that Marilyn Manson would wear. Okay. Did you see him in concert? About eight times. Eight times? I, I, I had every single CD, single. I had B-sides. I had everything. I had, at one point in my life, I had 13 Marilyn Manson t-shirts. They were all I would wear. Um, I, you know, absolutely obsessive fan for years. It was all I would listen to. It was all, I like, you know, real, like, he became my, I don't know, idol, if you can call it that. I know that, it, obviously, you have, um, your own idols uh, in in the in the form of Dylan and the Beatles, but That's in, right. at the time at the time he was mine. Ooh, Brent just ooh terrible look on Brent's face there. Shut up, Brent. <laughs> uh, so uh, and you, so the your stepfather, who um, the controlling uh, man you're talking, he is the father of your sister. Yes. Okay. Yeah, the only good thing he's ever done. <laughs> yeah. Now, how long were he and your mom married? 
so they were married for about four years, five years. They got divorced when I was about, or started, it was a long divorce, two and a half years. I think it was Holy about 17. Shit. It was about 17. And then I was kicked out by him when I was just turned 18. Um, so there's a bit, we had a big row and I realized that I was about a foot taller than him. And I stood up for myself for the first time and he didn't like that. And so that resulted in me uh, moving out, shall we say. And I then moved in with my grandfather, who he used to live with us when he'd had his stroke. So I lived with him for about um, six months when I was 18. So that made my second year of college, which I think is your high school. So I was like 18 in my second year of college, rather eventful because I was kind of living with my granddad, but he was a very, he was an amazing man. Like he would, if I was sat there on a Tuesday night and watching telly, he'd say, why haven't you got your friends around, you know, have a party. Oh, wow. Invite some friends around. He was, he was a brilliant man. Um, and so then from the age of about 18, I was then supporting myself from then till now in terms of like, I had to figure out getting jobs. And what was your first job? To live well, I worked, my first job was actually working for my stepfather in uh, Burnley market selling settees. I did that for two and a half years. So every Saturday in school holiday, I'd be working selling furniture from the age of about 14. You saw, <laughs> you sold furniture. <laughs> Yeah, and then I also delivered furniture. So I was was a delivery boy delivering furniture. Okay. Um, I did that till I was about 17. And then as soon as I turned 18, I'd always wanted to work behind a bar. So I found some bar jobs. And I loved working behind uh, bars. And I did that on and off for a number of years. Did uh, you have... I got my first... Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, no, go ahead. Then my first proper job, my first like full time job, was when I was eighteen, and I got a job as a customer service agent in a call center. Now we're so talking. That's how buddy. my career began. Now we're talking. Yeah, so, yeah. did you feel you had said that when your parents split up, you uh, and I might be remembering how you said it, but you basically lost a lot of confidence. You didn't have a lot of confidence. So, no, no. And was that still the case when you were eighteen? So by that time, I had found the joys of uh, marijuana and uh, oh. alcohol, and uh, I think in the in the you know alternative music scene it, that was a very big thing. So I think from uh, at, at around that age, I was just kind of masking a lot of feelings. I was I was I had a, I had a very at the time really active social life. So I'd be out all the time going to gigs, concerts with friends. So mm -hmm. it was a, whilst in one respect, it was quite challenging being, I, I, I know 18 is not young, young, but it is young to be uh, supporting yourself, I think. Oh, I think um, so. Yeah. And so it was quite fun in one respect, but then also very chaotic. Like I've, I've moved house in my life 34 times. Um, wow. And a lot of those, kind of house moves happened during those periods where I would live somewhere for a few weeks or a few months and then move somewhere else. So it was a really unstable, chaotic lifestyle of um, kind of working full time, but then also not really being, and so being very mature and grown up in a workplace <laughs> and outside of that being an absolute nightmare. Uh, and then I did that for a couple of years. I got a few other different jobs and decided to go to university at 21 so i had like a two or three years out of education and then realized my friends were having a lot of fun um and i wasn't i was working full time and they were just seemed to be having fun all the time i thought this doesn't feel right right i should go to university as well so i did and uh, I, I studied film and media um, film and media yeah very okay. valuable uh educational course. right next to my uh, theater degree yeah, yeah, yeah. It, which involved not making films, but watching films and then writing about them. So that was my uh, degree course. What What were some films that you fell in love with while in school? Um, I've got a poster there of my favorite film of all time, which is Hedwig and the Angry Inch. Yes. Which I think is the greatest film ever made of all time, hands down. Um, so I watched that about 3,000 times. I wrote my dissertation based on it. And... Um, uh, I don't know. That was that was definitely my favorite film ever. What is his uh, name? That, the guy who made that? Don Cameron Mitchell. That's right. 
Yeah. I saw I saw a stage version of it um, last year, and it was amazing. Oh, really? Just this past yeah. year? Mm-hmm. It wasn't John Cameron Mitchell. It was somebody else playing Hedwig, but still an amazing show. So around this time, too, what when did you start going into counseling and therapy? So it was at university. So what what happened was in my I I, I started I started a band. So I was in a band, and um, oh, wait a minute, uh, what kind of band was it? Let me guess. Hold so, on, hold on, folk. No, not folk. It was more like a, a thrash metal band. There are still a handful of videos on YouTube. Uh, what, what's the band's and say it again? Dark and darkenment. Now that's a fucking badass light. name right there, buddy. What Isn't happened it? was they put dark in where light is, Brent. Just draw it on the whiteboard over there. Yeah. Jim Morrison, I think it came from, from the doors. Oh, God. Uh, okay. And so I was the drummer. So mm-hmm. the reason I was the drummer is I bought a drum kit and nobody else had a drum kit. And I'd never played the drums, but then I was the drummer in a band. <laughs> and then within six months, we were playing live shows. We, recorded a handful of songs it was it was very fun we had a band house uh you had a what a band house you said yeah yeah we all lived together as the band did that lead to did you guys fight not initially but it didn't end well i think what happened was like the um i think like the bassist took the somebody else's girlfriend and then the Rhythm guitar. They all, everybody slept with each other's girlfriends, and it all kind of blew up. And it was, it all happened very quickly. And, and then, then you guys made happened, a record called Rumors. Oh no, wrong band. <laughs> we should have done. Ah, yeah. No, we should have taken that pain and made a masterpiece of a record. But we didn't know. It just all collapsed. And then um, at the time, uh, I, 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 I was still in a pretty dark place, and I had not really ever done anything about it. And I was given these. Uh, at the time, I was a smoker as well, smoking cigarettes. And uh, there was this new drug that the doctors had released. And it said, oh, you know, it's this wonder drug. You take it and you quit smoking. And I'd been trying to quit smoking for years. So I thought, oh, great, I'll try this drug. Mm-hmm. Not knowing the side effects or that it makes any form of depression significantly worse. So I took these like wonder drugs with the expectation of quitting smoking. And then a week later, I was sobbing in front of my doctor. <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, just and and it was it was really hard to put in the words. I couldn't really speak to this doctor, but then he, I was at university, of course, and he referred me to uh, like I don't know, like a counselling service that the university offered. Okay, and I remember going to this counsellor and just sitting there, just crying for an hour, and I couldn't put into words why. I couldn't explain why, um, and I think that it was basically just years and years of problems that i would not spoken with anybody about I, and then in like uh later sessions he asked me like tell me about your life and there was this whole five-year period from the age of about nine to about 14 it was just blank it just wasn't there like it was as if those years hadn't happened and there were other memories i had where um i had the memory of like but i would see it from like the bird's eye corner of the room looking down um, and, and, you know, through, it's like you're disassociating. Many, many yeah, completely disassociated from certain events and things that have happened. And like one thing he asked me to do was to write down my life story. Uh-huh. So I sat down and I think I sat typing for about 15 hours solid, tens of pages, just like a monologue of, and it really helped me to kind of piece together because I couldn't even remember. I know why I've lived in 34 houses is because that was the first time I'd ever actually sat down. Oh, and did the count? Like did a count like of where I'd been in life and what had happened. Because at the time I was about 22, 23, but I felt like 50. I felt like I'd already had 10 different lives because I'd moved around so much and had so many different things happening. And so having that time to to put structure to it all, really 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 helped and then from that kind of moment not that it was an overnight recovery but it it really helped me to understand me <laughs> and understand and 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 process things i suppose so um definitely you know pro get counseling yeah hell yeah 
We need did to. you? So you obviously you stopped taking that miracle smoking drug. Yes. yes. And did yeah. you get on any sort of medication for the depression that you you were having? Yeah, I I went on to sertraline for a couple of years, um, for about two years, and I stopped when I moved to London. So after I finished university and moved to London. Um, the way it works in the UK is you kind of you're tied to your GP doctor's surgery. I moved to London, didn't sign up again, mm-hmm. and then got my job that I still have now twelve years later. And then I found that actually um, there's alternative ways of uh, uh, feeling better. So tell us so, about this hellscape with your socialized medicine. Um, it's terribly. Everything's free. Um, uh-huh. You get to decide if you want to take things or not, and this no, no. That sounds fucking big. horrible. So let me tell it's, you. Go ahead. Yeah, awful. I mean, you have to pay taxes for it. Um. <laughs> let me tell you about a little word I like to say called freedom. I don't know if you've ever heard it. Not your version of it, no. <laughs> Fair enough. I remember one of the first, and I'm jumping around a bit, but one of the first walks we took in India, you and I, in Chennai, I think we were going to a store to, I don't know, get some chips because that's about all I ate. That and garlic cheese yep. bread from the Pizza Hut. And uh, you were talking about Margaret, we were talking about Margaret Thatcher. And you told me about a quote she had that something to the effect of there's no such thing as society or something like that. And I remember being yep. so mad because that's just not true. <laughs> Uh, and she sucked. Well, I've got her official biography in the bookshelves behind me, and um, it's another like thousand-page book. And I remember that for the first twenty pages or so, thinking, "Oh, she seems all right. You know, she's got a <laughs> humble beginnings, and she seems quite nice." And then after about a chapter or two, like, "Oh no, she's a white supremacist," and "Oh no, <laughs> she has some absolutely horrific worldviews on just about everything." So yeah. Is um, is that book called The Iron Lady? Assessment. Is that what that movie yeah. is based on? Yeah, The Iron Lady. She's not for turning. Um, uh, she's uh, not very well liked in uh, large parts of the country. Fair enough. Yeah. So uh, anyway, enough of this hellscape of socialized medicine. I, <laughs> I just can't. If people can't see right now, but he, uh, Adam just has sores all over his face. And uh, there are 17 clocks behind him that are all showing all the times he's waiting to see a doctor. It's really terrible, everyone. Freedom. Okay, so uh, you get down to London, um, and you, you're you no longer on, on the antidepressant, I believe. But I would you feel that you had the ability to kind of recognize the negative thought processes that you didn't even know were going on before, and now that you were able to do that? Exactly, and I still, I still can even now. You know, I know, I recognize when I start to not feel happy. <laughs> I can put it that way, mm-hmm. and then I know, like, I, like my way of um, of dealing with things is to, uh, I don't know. I suppose to just step back when things get too much, or. Does that mean like you need time alone to like kind of yes. process through it? Okay, yeah. exactly, exactly. Like I, I am, I'm a very strong introvert. I gain all my energy from being alone and independent, and just having that breathing space to uh, recharge. And it's it's the it's the perfect time to read, right? And I love that the way you said it. It it resets the brain. Um, yesterday, I found out some news that made me real sad. So I just sat on a couch and, and read a book for a while and, uh, it helps. It just recenters everything. It, you think about something else for me is speaking for myself. I wasn't wallowing in my own self pity for a little while there, which was nice. Um, so again, reading, um, so it's the, the, the cure of everything. And now, so now you're, we're coming up around mid twenties, Right. So we'll call it adulthood. And at this point, like, what did you think your life was going to be like? Well, at the time, I moved to London with the expectation of getting a sales job because that's what I, that was the last job I did before uni. And so I was looking at all these very high paid jobs that I kept applying for and getting absolutely nowhere. 
Um, and at the time I had to do like bar work and kitchen work and any random job to just survive. Mm -hmm. And then I, I saw, I saw this job for a customer service agent again. And I thought, well, it's minimum wage, but that's what I'm earning anyway. So I'll do that. And I planned on working there for six weeks and I'm still here 12 years later. (laughs) Right. Um, And by the way, minimum wage, that must be seven twenty-five an hour. It was seven pounds fifty an hour at the time. Uh, uh, I don't know what um, I don't know what weight has to do with this, Adam, but <laughs> it's rude. Uh, so you, you take- seven fifty an hour. So it was it was about the same as I was earning doing bar work. How do you? How was that? How did you live on that in London, which I imagine is an extremely expensive city? I lived an hour and a half from the centre in a box room at the end of like zone six there's six zones in london and Mm -hmm. i was at the end of zone six um so i was about as cheaply as i could and in abject poverty in from some respects but they but but through working overtime and various other things managed to make it work um and then it was about a year or two after that um i was asked if i wanted to go to india and um I bit the person's hand off because I didn't think, you know, from the background I'd had, I'd never had any time or money to be able to travel. Mm-hmm. Like the thought, I, I, the, there was no planet I would have been able to afford to even save the flight costs to go to India unless I saved for a very long time. So I thought, oh, yes, the opportunity to travel and they get paid to do it. This is like win win. Um, and uh, lived in hotels for a year, which was. So Quite yeah, so you, I can tell you, you 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 live in a, to use your term, you know, abject poverty. You're on the outskirts of a giant city. You have your your yep. like commute is like basically three hours round trip. Yeah, and now you're in India, and it's not like you're just going there and doing a um a nine to five job. You were kind of in charge of a of a part of the office, right? Yeah, well, it was building this team up from nothing like recruiting and training and hiring and building. And it was the most fun ever. I met so many amazing people there that I still keep in touch with, yourself included. Um, And I still go back to India um, and I still get to see some of the same team uh, that we helped set up back in the day. Um, And that year definitely changed my life in infinite possible ways. Um, That must have done a lot for your, your confidence. I think it does. I think um, any form of travel... I mean, I've lived in five different countries now um, for tax purposes where I was like properly resident, (laughs) paying taxes there, not just traveling. Like I actually lived there as a citizen for a few months or a year or so. Um, So that was like... India was the first, but I lived in Germany and Poland and South Africa. And I think it was even in Ireland for a bit. God, I forgot I that you act- lived in South Africa in Berlin. Wow. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think the act- when you travel, even if it's through work, you you don't know anybody when you get there. You might be lucky enough to find a couple of colleagues in the office who you like and you want to go for a beer with. Um, but you kind of each time you travel and you go to a new country, you have to start from scratch. You right. have to find somewhere to live. You have to find some kind of social life. You don't have to be working 24 hours a day. And so I think just the act of doing that, like I think in some respects, my earlier life where I've moved so many times helped because I'm used to moving somewhere new. I'm used to starting again. But this was just on a whole other scale, a whole other level. So rather than just moving to a different town or a different flat, I'd be moving to a different country. It's it, And it's, it's not only is it a different country, it's just a, it's a, to- it's almost like, you're outside of reality. And that's not to say that India is outside of reality. It's like outside of the reality that you and I knew growing up. Oh yeah. I mean, from a small town to all these different countries and after doing that, I mean, after traveling for three or four years, I'd hit my absolute limit with that. I I think that the last country I moved to lovely country, um, was Poland. Aha. And it was like minus 17 degrees and it was winter and it was dark um, and it genuinely felt like I could have been in any country in the world because when you tend to live in like the bigger cities, they all have shopping centers filled with people shopping. 
yeah. and then you have bars everywhere filled with people drinking. You have restaurants filled with people eating. So no matter which country you are in the world, they all start to look the same after you've traveled and lived in enough countries. And I just hit my limit with it. So that's when I finally then moved home. This is like eight, nine years ago now, 2015. Um, God damn, I can't believe it's been that long. Because I, I was in Warsaw in, that was 2015. And uh, I was going to say, our, our mutual friend, Shuba, she and I were out at a bar one night, and then we got totally lost in Warsaw. And we're like walking around the subway stations or whatever it was. And um, But it, it just made me think of it, because it's like, well, you know what? I've been to other places. I'll figure it out. We're going to figure out how to get back to where yeah, we're going. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it does get old. So you probably, and correct me if I'm wrong, you're maybe craving some stability then? Yeah, yeah. And I, I met Shuba uh, in May. God in, uh, damn it, July. really? So keep in touch, keep in touch, yeah. yeah. Oh, I still talk to her. She's the best. She is. Shout out to Shuba. Yes. Yeah, so then in, in 2015, I moved back home. Um, well, I say home, moved back to England um, and lived with my friend, uh, Haley, who um, is one of the best humans ever. And then we've got a flat together in Manchester, in the center of Manchester, and it was the most fun ever. And then I met my now wife not long after that. It was that year, actually. And then here I am, a married man with an almost six-year-old daughter. <laughs> Which, again, 10 years ago, uh, when I met you, if you would have told me that you were going to be a married man with a six-year-old daughter in 10 years, I would have been like, no, you're not. I genuinely planned when I, so when I first moved to India, I thought this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. I want to travel for the rest of my life. I want to explore new countries and cultures, meet new people. And I managed about three or four years. And I've since learned after speaking with many of the people who have had similar life experiences, that is not an uncommon um uh, experience to think mm -hmm. that you're going to travel forever and then eventually it does wear you down and you do just want a bit of stability not in every case but it's not it's not a unique experience i think wanting to eventually stop and yeah. just have a bit of a grounding you met your wife uh, future wife now wife uh and then you uh, the two of you had a beautiful daughter Yes, yes, who is now in her uh, second year of primary school. Uh, the most amazing little girl ever. She is... Wife's nice too, of course. <laughs> <laughs> she is the sweetest. I, I do have to tell a little bit of a story. It was, um, it was the day after we went to the Cavern Club. So we were in Manchester. So what is that, about an hour from yeah. Liverpool yep. or so? And about so an we took an Uber back to your place. And, you know, we were all not sober. And luckily, uh, we were able to sleep in. You uh, are a father, and um, she would have been, you know, one and a half at that time, almost two. And <laughs> I just remember laying down in that basement room, wishing for more darkness, and uh, hearing, E.D., no! Um, because she was trying to write on the walls. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's you have to go. Yeah, I mean, uh, until about the last year or so, I don't think we had an unbroken night's sleep or a lie. Like, you just don't get that. And nobody and nothing prepares you for parenthood. Yeah. I, I, used, I used to think before I became a father that I would want a dozen children. And um, I, I think I had this very rose-tinted view of what parenthood actually is and it's the most amazing and exhilarating and best thing ever to happen to me ever but it's not what you think it is it's not like all lovely nice days out it's like uh figuring out like okay uh she's sick again are you taking the day off work or am i or not sleeping for four years was a big part of parenthood good lord <laughs> how did you get through that i guess it's just you have no other choice no, I remember I, I had my first work trip after Edie was born. It was about four or five, I don't know, a few months after she was born. And I remember going into the office in Warsaw and my colleague just said to me, like, Adam, what's wrong? <laughs> thought so, I thought I was ill. I thought something had happened. I just aged that much in four months since he'd previously seen me. 
that he thought I was ill. I think I'd lost weight. I was wrinkly. I was. I think I'd lost half my head of hair. I was just aged, aged very quickly. I'm here to but tell you, what, you didn't lose half your head point. of hair. <laughs> that would be me. You might have been looking at my photo or my face when you said that. Wouldn't you tell us... Uh, I want to say this. You have always been somebody who's been realistic uh, about the challenges of parenthood, but you've always... In, in a very rare case, you have always been so exuberant and joyful when describing it. Even when, as you just did, oh, I didn't sleep for four years. But you're like, oh, but it's the best experience. So how have you kept that perspective? Is it just the love that you have for your daughter? Or is it just the joy of having that stable home? Or, or it's, it's all everything. The, yeah. and, and I think I am an eternal optimist. I always, always assume the best. And I, I it, it winds friends, family, my wife all the time, because I'll say annoying things like, oh, I've just got good luck. Like if we're going to somewhere and there's a busy car park, I'll say, oh, we'll find somewhere. You know, I've got good luck. I'll find something. Um, <laughs> and, and it can be infuriating when like people think the world's about to end and I'll say, it'll be all right. You know, we'll figure something out is my general approach in life. And it's, it's, it's how I approach most problems is just assuming the best and that things will eventually work out. Is that is that something that you came into as you were able to go through counseling and kind of work through yeah. some of the stuff, and then you kind of came out the other side with that type of perspective? Yeah, yeah, and I think that if it's it's, I mean, people have different perspectives. Yeah. The pessimists amongst us think it's better to be more realistic and uh, uh, more prepared for a negative outcome, but I prefer to just assume the best will happen. Uh, um, yeah, which is my general life approach, I would say. So let me ask you this as we're wrapping up, Adam. I have a couple questions. One, we talked a lot about books in this episode. So can you name a couple books? I know we Harry Potter was a big one for you. Um, and I'm kind of putting you on the spot and I apologize. But a couple books that you can think of that were great books to read, but also were perfect escapes for you and allowed you to be in another place uh and 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 experience something different than kind of the humdrum world you were in so my favorite book of all time is stoner which i read for the first time in cape town and it's the first lengthy book i've ever read cover to cover i literally didn't stop i started reading it i don't know what time it was 8 p.m and i stayed up till about 5 a.m i just didn't stop reading this book cover to cover and I've since read it a couple of times since, and I never reread as a general rule. Once I've read a book, it doesn't get read again. But for this book, I made the exception, and it's just about a man's life. Yep. Like nothing, not the most amazing of lives, not the most eventful of lives, but just a man's life. And I think it captures the essence of most people's lives better than any other book I've ever read. Because most people aren't serial killers or wizards or um, hitchhikers. Um, Some or all three. No, no. So, but, but that, I think that's my favorite book, and I recommend it to everyone. You recommended it to me, and I read it. It's a fantastic book. So, for all yeah. of those who are getting weighed over there in the corner, Stoner is not because he liked drugs. That's his last name, <laughs> and uh, it was written written by John Williams, as I recall. And didn't you name a car after him after Stoner? Yeah, my first car, which was a, a, a 20-year-old Peugeot 106 that was falling apart, I paid 500 pounds for it. I called him William. That's right. Uh, what other book, what, uh, what one other book would you say comes to mind? It has to be a trilogy of fives, which would be The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. So when I was about 14, I read that five series of books. I think I read it eight times in one school year to the point that my English teacher was worried about me. Because that was all I would read. And it was to the point, I read these books enough times, I'd memorized them. I knew the next sentence before I read it. And I think, uh, again, best, I think my personal best, say, series of books ever is The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Douglas Adams is, was, shall I say, a genius. And that is a book everybody should read. Uh, and again, I remember Excellent. being in Star Wars bar when you telling me a very similar story. And then I got it on my nook, not my Kindle, Brent, my nook. And I read the first one. Now, I, I need to go back and read all of them. I've only read the first one. 
yeah. Uh, well, now you can get the the condensed five books in one book. Yes. So uh, the paper book. I don't read uh, those newfangled digital books. That, I don't really anymore new. either. But I did when I was in India for sure. No, I had a Kindle. Yeah, I had yeah. a Kindle, but then it broke, and I never replaced it. And yeah, I'm firmly back in the realm of paper when it comes. It's to it's books. a good it's a good place to be. Um, and, uh, again, you're one of my reading heroes. And as, as we wrap up, I also want to say, you know, I, I don't mean to make light of it. As I said, the man who saved my soul, but you know, it was a very challenging time for me when I was in India, uh, mainly about my own stuff, not anybody else. You know, I was just very anxious and all the stuff and you just were a lifesaver to me and will uh, became one of my closest friends and will remain one of my closest friends for the rest of my life. And I'm just so lucky to know you. And yes, your eternal optimism at times, it's like, shut up. But it's also like, yeah, you're right. So thank you for all of that, Adam. And, you know, as we're wrapping up, is there anything else that you would like to say or share with everyone, uh, you know, that you maybe you didn't get to say during telling some of your stories? Um, well, um, <clears throat> I remember when you spoke at my wedding and it was the most amazing, heartfelt, beautiful speech of all time. And my some of my friends said, so one of one of my friends who was also speaking at the wedding said, Who is that damn American? He came up with this beautiful speech and he made my speech look crap in comparison. <laughs> um, so you you have remained in everybody's memory um for that. And no, no, I feel the same. I think India was was life-changing. Um and it's the most amazing country with the most amazing people. Yes. But being duplicated from everything you know. And like it's like living on Mars when you're when it's your first time living in another country. So I think, yeah, I, I, I also genuinely appreciated the time that we spent together. And um of all the people that uh that I met there, I think by far <laughs> it's us two who have stuck together the That's most. Right. And you know, we need to plan another in-person meetup. But uh, well, hey, man, uh, you, you come to you come to Chicago, but um, yeah, I got to get back over there. And and I want to say one more time, you just said it. It cannot be said enough. The nicest people in the world lived in India. Live in India. They're just the nicest people, no matter what the situation is. Uh, just the most welcoming, kind people. I just cannot say enough. Um. Well, Adam, thank you so much for coming on and uh, sharing some of your stories. And I'm, you know, from a difficult start there or kind of weird that nine to 14, as you said, coming to now where you're um, doing very well for yourself. You have a wonderful wife, a wonderful daughter, and um, just proof of that optimism, I guess, works sometimes. So I'm going to look into it. I'm going to look into it. <laughs> should trial it. Yeah, I'll try. Yeah, I'll I'll do a free trial. Optimism's gonna be like, what's your credit card number? Because uh, <laughs> of course it is. Adam, thank you so much for coming on, my friend, and um, I look forward to talking to you again soon. Thank you, Kevin. Yes, and uh, to everyone else, I will end uh, the show the same way I always try to, which is a reminder that there is always room for kindness and grace, even within ourselves. There is always room for kindness and grace. I forget it all the time. I forgot it yesterday, so I picked up a book, and that helped. Thank you so much for listening. Please tell a friend, and we'll see you next time on Sad Times. You've been listening to a fourth-hand joint.